You know, it's a devastating thing when a city falls. It was a devastating thing in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem fell. The nation of Judah along with her, leaving the city in ruins, smoking ruins. The temple burned down. It was a horrible time. It was national judgment for the people's unfaithfulness to their God, to the great Yahweh. They had corrupted his worship. They had despised his laws. And now God had brought judgment through the Babylonians, through Nebuchadnezzar. One writer said that archaeological evidence suggests that about 80% of the towns and villages of Judah were completely destroyed or abandoned during the Babylonian invasion and its aftermath. It was extensive. And that's what the book of Lamentations is responding to. That's what's behind the lament of this book. So where does faith find hope when your nation is decimated? Everything that you depended on for life has been taken away. What then? Where do you go, as our sermon series is entitled, to find grace in grief? That's part of what Lamentations is about, the suffering. And as I prayed a minute ago, when we read the Bible and we find darkness, we want to run to the light. But we need to linger a little in the darkness as well. There are different books in the Bible that deal with different kinds of suffering. You know uh, the book of Job, for example, which has kind of a mysterious suffering that Job didn't understand. And it was, it was the, the rationale was taking place in heaven, not on earth. And he didn't know why he was suffering. No particular sin was being targeted. This book, this Lamentations, deals with suffering that is well-earned because of their unfaithfulness, their long and deep unfaithfulness. So before we go into the text this morning, I just want to make a few observations on Lamentations 1. And by the way, uh, we've got those scripture journals again. Just want to remind you, if you don't have one, or maybe you're not in the habit of uh, writing down notes, it's helpful. Uh, These are, I think, $4. They're very minimal. Uh, They're available back at the Information Center if you want to grab one and take notes through our series. But let's make a few observations. So if you're looking at chapter 1, one of the things that's important to us as pastors is that when we preach and teach the Bible, we don't want you walking away saying, oh, wow, only Pastor Brian can see the, 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 the good stuff in the Bible. If only I could do that too. Well, you can do that too. And one of our goals is to help you see what we see as we've studied and observed the text over many hours. So let's just make a few observations. So look in chapter 1 and see these with me. First, notice that in verses 1 to 11, and these are kind of the big blocks of text, 1 to 11, 12 to 22. But in, in the first block, in 1 to 11, most of it is written in the third person. In other words, there's a lot of she and her references through that whole section, mostly. 
And then when you get to verses 12 down to the end of the chapter, we find mostly first-person references, I and my type references. Someone else is speaking there. And in, this, in this case, it's, it's a, a personification of, of Jerusalem. It's someone called uh, Zion, Lady Zion, uh, who is speaking for herself, uh, as it were, in those last sections, except for verse 17. And then another thing to notice, just by way of uh, preliminary observation, notice there's a very sad phrase that's repeated several times in this chapter. And you, you might have picked up on it as we were reading. It's the phrase, none to comfort her, or a phrase that's similar to that. You see it in verse 2, in verse 9, in verse 16 and 17, and verse 21. It almost... It almost runs through the chapter like a thread or like a, a chorus almost. Remember, we're, we're dealing with another book that is Hebrew poetry. This is, a, this is the type of literature that this book is. It's poetry. That's why everything is kind of indented the way it is in your translation of the Bible. And, and in poetry, uh, one of the things that uh, happens is sometimes there are verses and there are choruses that are repeated for emphasis. And then third, notice also that there are, there are some prayers scattered in this chapter, which I think we'll see later in the message this morning is really important. Um, there's some prayer that's scattered throughout the chapter. We see it, uh, the last line of verse 9. Uh, we see it, uh, the last line of verse 11. And we see it uh, down in, in the last three verses, verses 20 to 22. So those are just some preliminary observations. If you were reading through the chapter a number of times, you might notice those things sticking out to you. And there's other, other things as well that you would notice, I'm sure. But let's take a look at the chapter now and see what the Lord wants us to see in this first lament, this first of five laments in the book of Lamentation. This first, as Pastor Trey uh, defined it last week um, so adequately, a prayer in pain. A prayer in pain, this first prayer in pain. So I've, I've divided this up into four groupings today just to kind of help us think through the chapter. The first one is verses 1 through 11. And I think that what we're meant to see here, it, it actually what we're meant to do is to feel the pain. So firstly, feel the pain. Feel the pain. Judah, Zion, wants some pity here. And you see her pain described in several ways in these first 11 verses. One thing that you'll notice is what she has lost. Let me point out several of those. Um, notice she's lost her homeland uh, in verse 3. She's gone into exile. She uh, dwells among the nations. Look at verse 5 at the end of the verse. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. So she's lost something. She's lost her homeland. Another thing she's lost are her privileges. Look, at, look in verse 4. It says, The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festivals. No more public worship. The temple has been decimated. So that privilege has been taken away. You see it also in verse 10, that the foes... Her enemies have entered the sanctuary in the middle of verse 10. 
Uh, in fact, that's what all of verse 10 is about, uh, which was never allowed before. That by a penalty of death would they let a foreign nation come into their sanctuary. But it's happened here. She's lost her privileges. Look, notice she also has lost her leadership. Did you see in verse 6, um, for instance, she says her, her, um, her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. Um, and and if, we, if we cheat and go outside of verses 1 to 11, uh, down in verse 19, uh, it's mentioned again that my priests and elders perished in the city uh, while they sought food to revive their strength. The whole leadership of their country has been decimated. They're trying, everyone's just trying to survive. They've lost leadership. She's also lost her respect. Uh, notice that in verses 7 uh, down through 9. Uh, look at the, the last part of verse 7. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. And then you have this picture in verses 8 and 9 of a woman. Did you pick that up? She's, she's shamelessly exposing her nakedness. She, she's indifferent to, it, it talks about uncleanness and filthy. That's describing menstrual blood. That's the, that's the rawness of this picture here. It's, it's almost the picture of, of a harlot or, or a prostitute who has... Uh, who has been shamed, uh, verse 9 and so on. She, she's lost her respect. The country has lost its respect. She's also lost her provision. Look at verse 11. Her people are groaning as they search for bread. They've, they've given their precious things. They trade their treasures for food. They've lost provisions. Daily bread is a problem. So those are all things that she's lost that we see in these first 11 verses. But then some more of her pain comes across when you see her isolation. As I mentioned, there are five times that little phrase, none to comfort her, or, or a phrase that's worded is very similar to that, verses 2, 9, 16, 17, 21. And, and then look at verse 7. Uh, very similar type phrase. No one, none to help her. Isolation. You, you know, it's one thing to go through heavy losses. All of us can probably relate to having suffered heavy losses at different times in our lives. But there's a pain that goes beyond that if there's no one with you. No one to help you get through it. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he, says, when, he, when he talked about how everyone had forsaken him at his trial, but the Lord had stood by his side. And so there was comfort for Paul even in that. There were no human helpers to stand with him, but Paul had the Lord who gave him strength. But according to Judah, in this chapter, no one can help. And, and we could also probably say that her pain comes from her misery, too. There's another word that's repeated five times uh, in the chapter, and it's groan or groaning. You've already heard it, haven't you? Uh, you see it in verse 4. You see it in verse 8. You see it in verse 11. 
all her people groan. You see it down in verse 21 and 22, groaning, misery. Uh, In verse 12, it kind of all comes out in that question, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me. You can just hear the misery in her cry. Verse 12, by the way, is not referring to the sufferings of Jesus. Um, I noticed that there are a number of very old hymns that were written about verse 12, about Jesus. I think it's that kind of that, ling- that language there about passing by. And uh, there's some you know, connection to you know, the people who passed by the cross type of a thing. But, but that's not what... There's no indication of that in the New Testament. This isn't talking about the sufferings of Christ. It's talking about the sufferings of Zion, the sufferings of Judah, as God has inflicted his judgment on her. And and she's expressing this misery. Take it in. Look at my misery, she says. Get a feel for this pain that I'm enduring. She doesn't want to be detached. She doesn't want to be isolated. She's trying to pull you in she wants you to feel her pain with her and you get a strong sense of that in verses 1 through 11 i think if anything there there's a helpful reminder to us that as people suffer around us we should not be cold and detached and indifferent to them even and especially if they're suffering for their own sins Sometimes when people suffer for their sins and we, you know, have that kind of self-righteous, well, they got what they deserved. Well, it's a good thing we don't get what we deserve, isn't it, all the time? There's, I think there's a helpful reminder here. The New Testament tells that to us, too. If, if we were to take the time to look over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Peter wrote that all of us, writing to the church, all of us should have a unity of mind, and the very next word says sympathy. You've got to have a heart for the Lord's people and their troubles. Or as Lady Zion reminds us here in chapter 1, feel the pain. Please feel my pain along with me. I think there's a reminder there for us. The second thing that I want us to notice, verses 12 to 19, and it's to hear the truth. I think that's the second thing that Lamentations chapter 1 is trying to tell us. Hear the truth. I I mentioned in in, in verse 12 and following, there's a shift from the third person to the first person. And so it's almost like now she's talking and we're going inside of her distress. She's giving us an inside look. Now, back in verse 5, we've already noticed that, um, that, that Jerusalem was afflicted um, and, and it's because the Lord afflicted her. So there's a truth there that the suffering that she has is coming from the Lord. But, but, but then as you look at verses 12 and following, this, this phrase, this idea just keeps hitting over and over and over again. Look at, look at the end of verse 12 where it says, um, this, is, uh, this is sorrow that she says, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger look on verse 13 from on high he god sent fire into my bones he made it descend he spread a net for my feet he turned me back 
He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. Look at the end of 14. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord has given, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Look at verse 15. The Lord has rejected all my mighty men. He summoned an assembly against me. The Lord has trodden as in a wine press. You know that picture of, of, of stomping on the grapes in a wine press. He has done that to us. God has done this. God has afflicted our suffering. This is our judgment for being unfaithful. So I think one of the things Lamentations 1 is trying to tell us is we need to hear the truth. The intention here is not to blame God for his judgment, but to justify him, to vindicate him, to bring clarity into the chapter. It's almost like Lady Zion here is saying, this is something that God has done and he is right to have done it. In fact, did you see that very clearly at the beginning of verse 18? The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. And it just hammers that point home over and over again in verses 12 to 19. Hear the truth. Um, I think, you know, if we were going to try to apply this section uh, to our lives, so, you know, there's, a, there's a danger here sometimes in texts like this that it's easy for us to have kind of a, a detached kind of arrogance. Uh, like I was saying earlier, uh, sometimes we say, well, you know, Israel got what they deserved. They messed up. They are the ones who always complained, always rebelled, all the way out of Egypt, all the way in the wilderness. They're worshiping Baal in the time of the judges. They're always spiraling downward, but we're the church. We're the good guys. There's a danger, I think, in trying to detach ourselves from this and saying, they're all to blame and we're all good. You know, we're better than they are. The church is full of sinners too, aren't we? Um, there's no perfect church because there's no perfect people in churches, except theologically for the fact that we're, ro- we're wrapped in the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? So thank God for that because without that, we couldn't get into heaven. But we are sinners and we deserve punishment just like Israel did. A third thing I want you to notice this morning is I want you to see the big picture. I want to draw a little of attention here to the way that Lamentations is shaped. I want you just to see a little bit more of observations about this chapter. And in fact, chapter 2 is, is similar, as we'll see next Sunday. Uh, one of, and I think Pastor Trey mentioned this last week, and it's in the little, um, if you have that little poster from last week, I think it's covered on that too. But four of the five chapters in Lamentations follows what's called an alphabetical acrostic. So what that means is, you guys know what acrostics are, right? Like uh, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. I mean, you know, you know what acrostics are, right? We take, a, we take the letters of something and we, we, each letter represents something. Well, in, in the Hebrew poetry, what they would do is they would take the letters of the Hebrew alphabet... There were 22 of them. That's why there are 22 verses in chapter 1 and 2 and 
4 and 5. And there's 66 verses in chapter 3, but we'll see that, that it's, it's really just a triple version of all of this. But here, uh, they take the first letter of the, um, the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph, and the first word of verse number 1 starts with Aleph. It starts with an A. And then when you get to, to the second verse, it starts with the letter uh, B, as it were, in English, right? So, so it goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why do they do that? There's some psalms that are like that too. And I know that's not easy to see in the English because we don't see the Hebrew words and we don't see those letters as a result. But this is how it's written. And it's important for us to notice that. Sometimes they wrote in acrostics like that to help with memorization. So as you're memorizing the Bible, it's easy to remember that this verse starts with this letter and then the next letter and then the next letter. It helps with memorization. But I don't think that's the case here. I think that what's happening in Lamentations is another way that they used these acrostics, and it's almost like they, um, it, it, gives, um, it, gives the, it gives a more complete picture of a subject. So like we would say, um, if you want to learn something from A to Z, we're going to tell you everything about that subject, you know, and we're going to kind of go through it systematically. And I think that's what is going on in Lamentations. They're trying to express grief or sorrow, this lamenting in, in a way, in a complete way, almost like they could say everything from A to Z. They're trying to give a full expression to their grief. Here's the way one uh, commentator put it. He said, when you have this acrostic form following the alphabet, it organizes grief. Patiently going over the ground step by step, or you might say letter by letter, insisting on the significance of every detail of suffering. So as you read Lamentations 1, your first read, you're just like, whew, these people are suffering. I mean, you just get hit with this barrage of grief and suffering, right? But if you look at it carefully, it's an organized, it's a thoughtful barrage of grief as well. A lot of thought went into how they wanted to express these chapters. So it helps us from taking shortcuts through our grief, which is something that a lot of us like to do. You know, we like to get over our our sorrow and our grief as quickly as possible. It, It makes us think about it. It makes us go on for 22 verses describing it in detail. It slows us down. It forces us to pay attention. They're choosing their words carefully. There's a, there's a pattern that they want us to see when it comes to grief, that it's a process, that it's a long-term project, perhaps. You know, when we suffer for different reasons, um, the intensity of that grief changes over time. You know, the edge uh, might get less and less, but the sadness always stays to a certain point, doesn't it? And the Bible recognizes this. It, it alphabetizes grief for us in these chapters, and it wades its way through it. So the acrostic idea here, I think, might help us 
with ongoing suffering and ongoing grief, whether it's judgment for national sins like Judah was experiencing and like America certainly deserves, or, you know, whether it's personal suffering or distress. How does it help us? Well, it puts it in this pattern for us, this ABC pattern for us. It's structured pain. It's a, it's a disciplined pain. It's, it's, a, it's a suffering that helps us to find and choose words to express our pain. It's grief. It's still intense, but yet it's understandable. We can work our way through it. So I, I don't want to spend much more time here on this, but, and I don't want to, to, you to misunderstand me, uh, but what I'm suggesting is that there's almost like an art to grieving biblically. That's kind of what he's suggesting here through the use of poetry. So I think that one of, one of the applications we could say is that when we mourn, when we grieve, when we sorrow, it's worth our best effort as we go through it. In other words, don't just give up and fall flat on your face. But as you suffer and as you grieve and as you mourn, try to do it in, an, in a disciplined way as best as you can. Thinking through it, expressing it, working through all the parts of it. Um, and that seems to be what Lamentations can help us with and how it's modeling for us how the nation is dealing with its own grief. I just wanted you to see that. It's not necessarily found in, in the, the content of the verses, but it's, it's seen in the, sh- in the shape, in the structure of the, la- of the la- lamentations. And, and it comes up multiple times. So I want to just point it out here today. A fourth thing, uh, quickly, is that these people call out to God. They call out to God. We see that in verses 20 through 22 here at the end of the chapter. And this is another thing that um, I want you to see about the structure of these verses. And you can, you can see this from your own observation. Um, sometimes in poetry, one of the techniques they use is not only acrostics, like I mentioned, which is hard for you to see um, in the English, but the other thing that sometimes they do is they use um, kind of parallel ideas at the beginning and the end, and then they kind of work those parallel ideas all the way to the center. Um, they, they call them concentric circles. And, and the idea is, let me, let me show you what I mean. So, for example, in verse 22, notice, um, notice that it says there um, that, um, uh, let's see what I want to show there. Um, Look at how, um, the groaning that takes place there, um, as you have dealt with me, um, you've become a slave, uh, that may be not the easiest one to look at, um, let me show you, let me show you one that's a little easier, um, because they're not all, they're not all perfect, look at, Verse 20, for example. So that's three back from the end. See where it says, Look, Lord, I am in distress. And if you go to verse 3 at the beginning, the first three verses, and at the end of the verse, you see again the word distress. There are some key words that are at 
parallel locations. So you, you notice these thoughts as you work your way through the chapter. Um, let me see if I can find you another one quickly. Um, look at verse uh, 4. Um, you see the word priests. And the, the only other time that you see that here, I believe, is in verse 19, where again the word priest comes up. So there's some, there's some ideas, there's some significant terms that find, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like 1 in 22, and 2 in 21, and 3 in 20, and 4 in 19. And, and you can see these key terms as you work through the chapter. The point of all of this is, it points you to the center of the chapter. And what's at the center of the chapter is the main idea of the chapter. It's what the author wants you to see. And he's trying to help you see that by pointing you to it using that technique. Does that make sense? And what do we see in the middle is, is verses 11 and 12. And when you look at verses 11 and 12, if you just look at it for a second, just read the verses to yourself, there's a phrase that's repeated there. What is it? A repeated cry to the Lord. What, what, is it, what does uh, Zion say? A little louder. Look and see. Do you see it in verse 11? And you see it in verse 12. Look and see. So here at the very middle of the, of the lamentation, where the author is pointing us to using a poetic technique, he's, he wants us to see something right at the middle of this, and what we see here, repeated in both of these verses, is look and see. And that's actually what I titled the message today, because I think it is the main point of this first lament. Look and see. And, and, and the, the, Now, as far as we know, when we're reading chapter 1, even though they say we're getting punished for our sins, they're not saying we're sorry and we want to change and forgive us, and we repent. There's no, there's no picture of that in chapter 1 at all. And so as far as we know, this is a rebellious people who are getting what they deserve. They're unrepentant. They're suffering for their sins in a dramatic way. And yet, they still have a mind to seek help from heaven. And we see that modeled especially in verses 20 to 22, the last three verses, which is a prayer. Look and see. And here is the last prayer. It's the longest prayer in, in the chapter. And it takes on an internal distress. Look, look, at, look at verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My heart is wrung within me. That means my, my insides are churning. My, my heart is wrung with, within me because... Um, I have been very rebellious. Notice how it focuses on on real guilt there in the middle of verse 20. And it highlights the the really terrible conditions at the end of verse 20. In the street, the sword is bereaving. There's slaughter happening in the streets. In the house, death. Uh, Notice the isolation that she was speaking about early in 21. They've heard my groaning, but there's no one to comfort me. She talks about the enemies, how they're celebrating. Uh, they, they've heard of the trouble. They're glad that God is punishing them. Um, and then notice that at the end of verse 21, you have brought 
the day that you announced. Uh, you, uh, now, I want, she, she's praying that the enemies would also be punished. The ones that are gloating against her punishment, that, that the Lord would punish them too. Punish them for their sin like you're punishing me for my sin. It's almost a doctrinal prayer at that point. And then, um, and then verse uh, 22, um, you know, where she says, let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. So kind of a continuation of that. And then ending up, my groans are many and my heart is faint. And so what you see here is, is, is a great irony, I think, that these people who have done all of this horrible, unfaithful wickedness before the Lord, and they're now suffering for their unfaithfulness and their wickedness. Nevertheless, the God who is inflicting the suffering on them is the God that she is pleading with in the darkness. He's the one who's given the judgment. He's the one she's going to for help in the middle of it. It's almost instinctive, I think, for, for people of God who have known how God deals with them in life. You know, um, one of the key things in the history of Israel was the exodus from Egypt, right? I mean, that's one of the core great themes of, of all the Old Testament. And remember that God heard the cry of his people in bondage in Egypt. And uh, if you go back to Exodus 3-7, God talks about seeing their affliction and coming to help them. And, and these people know. They know in their history. They know in their gut that even though they deserve this sin, they're suffering tremendously. They know the one to appeal to for help, even though they're rebelling against that very one. You can't get away from him. You can't let go of him. You need him. He's your way out. And I think that's the message of Lamentations 1. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back to the front. Uh, we're going to sing some more here as we go into the Lord's table. I ask our leadership team if they'll come to prepare to serve this morning. Think about this as we just wrap up for a second here. Instinctively, Lady Zion goes to God in the middle of her darkness in spite of everything. You know, many of us sometimes struggle with this too, don't we? When we're in the darkness, sometimes the lie of the devil that he convinces us of is that God has cast us off. That God's not interested in us anymore. And in those dark nights, we might cry out, Father, I'm in misery. I have no favor from you. I'm all alone. And at those points, we need to stop ourselves and remind ourselves that we use the word Father. What was that? It's an instinct of the people of God 
that you can't shake. It's there to hold on to until help arrives. God, look and see. And of course, we know the, theolo- we know the theology, right? God sees everything. He doesn't miss anything. But God, focus your attention. Focus your view on me and my situation. Help me. These are the foxhole prayers that soldiers cry out in the middle of battle. Father, help me. I'll do anything for you, right? Help me, save me, deliver me. We turn to God. Even those who are the faithless among us, even the atheists, in the moment of deepest crisis, they have only one place to turn. The only place we can turn to find help, to find hope, to see the grace in our grief. And I think that's the message of chapter 1. When you're in deep sorrow, don't forget to turn to the Lord, to call out to Jesus. He sees he can help, even when it's for our own sake, our own punishment. He loves us. He's sympathetic toward us. His heart is overwhelmed with compassion for us. He will do what is right, as the text said. But he's the one that we turn to. Don't ever forget that. Never think you're all alone. Like Paul. Remember what Paul said when I mentioned earlier? Nobody was there at my trial, but the Lord stood with me. He had that truth. I don't know where he got it from. Maybe Lamentations. Maybe other places in the Psalms or in the Old Testament. Maybe just in his own experience of walking with the Lord. But don't forget that. I think that's the lesson of chapter 1. When you are suffering, tell it to your Father. Go to Him. That's step number 1. We'll get to step number 2 next week.